0: Hi, I'm Tiki Barber, co founder of Thusio. Thanks for listening to the Thusio Live and Unfiltered podcast. We're bringing our past events back to life for you to enjoy. Keith Hernandez was our guest of honor for Thusio Live and Unfiltered in May of 2018. Keith is regarded as one of the greatest first basemen in Major League Baseball history, winning World Series with both the New York Mets and the St. Louis Cardinals. We chatted about how he ended up with a small but widely remembered role on the legendary show Seinfeld, his disagreements with Cardinals manager Whitey Herzog, and he reflected on the infamous Bill Buckner play during the 1986 World Series that ended in him winning his second championship. Enjoy the interview. Keith Hernandez, we've met many times. I got stuck on looking at you because my first question was, about your facial hair, how the hell do you get away with having a mustache still? How do I get away with it? Yes, I mean that's like the porn stash from the sixties.
1: <laughs> there is a porn star that tries to go around saying he's Keith Hernandez. <laughs> oh. I can't get rid of this. It's all gray now. By the way, and you know that I did the Just for Men commercial with Walt Frazier for so many years. Um, and you know, remember the Hollywood Squares when uh, Charlie Weaver was one of the guests, the big heavyset guy. Are we too young an audience? Well, he had normal colored hair and just this gray, completely gray mustache. And if I don't have any hair color on, it's completely gray, and I look like I'm seventy-five years old. <laughs> That'll get me to shave it.
0: (laughs) Yeah. So your new book that you just came out with, and you have two other ones. This one is about your uh, Cardinals days. And the first question I want, because obviously this is a a Mets audience more so than a a Cardinals audience, you left the Cardinals under pretty uh, controversial circumstances. You had a disagreement, so to speak, with Whitey Herzog. What was that about? Because I think I know what it was about, and I think you've said what it's about, but what was it really about?
1: Well, Whitey and I get along great today. He was the best manager that I ever played for. He, uh, as far as a field manager, uh, as far as communicating with his players, and, you know, communicating with players are far more important today, so it, to me, it seems, in our day, we were good soldiers, we went out there, just put us in the lineup and let us play. Uh, but... Uh, Whitey came over from Kansas City, and his bobo was George Brett, who was a great player. And uh, we were Missouri. I led the league in hitting in 79. Ken Boyer got fired in 80. Whitey took over in the middle of 80. Uh, And I had a great year that year. I lost the batting title the last day of the season by a point to Buckner. It would have been two batting titles in a row, which I lament to this day. But... (laughs) It just always seemed to me that Whitey was, you know, well, George does this and George does that and you don't do this. And I'm going, George takes infield harder than you do. And I go, George needs to take infield harder than I do. I mean, you can tie one hand behind my back and blindfold one eye and I can go out there and pick it. So I didn't say that to Whitey. But... It just seemed like we never got off on the right foot. Um, I enjoyed playing for him. Uh, I was always puzzled that I, I always had a kind of a bad vibe from him, and I went out there and played every day, and uh, I just couldn't figure it out. But I knew uh, that I was going to get traded because the rumor mill goes around, and it was like for around a month. I just didn't know where I was going. And as I found out later, I was almost traded to Houston, uh, for Ray Knight and um, Bob Kennedy Sr., which was tampering called me on the phone because he was our farm director he's, he's, well, he's, been, he's in this book, he's a very big part of my life, he was the St. Louis Cardinals farm director and he knew that I had it and he is just one of the great ones as far as at a point in my career where I could have gone either way and uh, he was like an angel on my shoulder, but he called me on the phone and said, uh, would you like playing in houston he was with the houston organization which he should never have done and i said at that point in my career my mom's from beaumont texas she has all kinds of family in houston and beaumont and san antonio and i just said bob i just don't i don't think i want at this point in my career have to go down and have a ton of family i'd rather i'd rather not to be honest with you plus i hated the astrodome it was not a hitter's ballpark it was the biggest park in the league and uh, so that kind of quiboshed that trade. So uh, Whitey found out later and was furious. So I think he tried to bury me here in New York <laughs> with the Mets.
0: <laughs> you talk about that '79 season. You hit 344. You won the batting title. Obviously, won the MVP that year uh, as well. But then talking about this trade, what about the partying? Because that's what I heard. The, the partying. Why. The partying. I always your individual partying. Se-
1: in, in after '79.
0: No, with Whitey. Why? He just traded you to New York. Oh, well, don't lie.
1: (laughs) Let me say one thing. We play night games. Okay? Former Met Pitching Coach Rick Peterson's over there at the lab. Rick, raise your hand. (laughs) He's a baseball guy. We play night games and we're on night schedule. I used to sleep to 12 noon, I used to wake up to all my children. And I'd order room service, my coffee and my pastries, because I could eat anything I wanted, because I was playing. And I would go to the, you know, have my main meal at three, go to the ballpark at four, dressed at five, game over around 10, 10 And what are you going to do on the road? You're going to go home and play tiddlywinks in the hotel room? Yeah. <laughs> so, you know, the guys would congregate at the bar. So when everybody talks about our 86 team, about how much we partied. I know that Daryl likes to talk about it and this. it's a badge of honor. I always took care of myself. I knew when I had to get to bed. There was a few times I burnt the candle at both ends, trust me. But, you know, if you do that on a daily basis, uh, uh, you, your performance is going to be affected. You know that. And so what's more important? But it was nothing like after a game having a couple beers, a hotel bar or whatever, took a cab, to, and, and talk about the game with your teammates. So if that's considered partying, um, okay, fine. You know, if a couple girls were around, <laughs> and if you got lucky, you know, most of the time I struck out, trust me.
0: He didn't strike out a lot. But that's, a, that's a complete and utter lie, and we, and we all know it.
1: Did you 300? <laughs> that's a
0: 70% failure rate. I was going to say something, but I reserve comment. Now, you said that you didn't do cocaine when you were in New York. Yes.
1: Well, I in, in New York. Yes. Right, you were
0: in New York.
1: Yes. I was. Um,
0: How in the world could you be out in, with the Cardinals and have cocaine? Not, don't say
1: Cardinals plural. There was Cardinals. a handful. Sorry. You know
0: what I mean. And then come to New York.
1: Because it gave me it's a new, Washington. it gave me a new. I was already knew that was the, that was a dead road, that was a road I had to get off, and it was nothing that was any lengthy time. It was never every day. It was never at home. Uh, it was always on the road once in a while, and um, it it's no good. It, you know, it gets a grip on you, and I realized that uh, I had to get away from it, and I was on my way, and. When I came to New York, it was perfect. No one knew me. Clean slate, new teammates. Hey, all I do is drink beer and an occasional uh, Chavis and water. That's all I do. And I'll stay out late with you, but I don't do, I, I don't do that stuff. And the
0: Mets were terrible when you first got here. We all well, they were at the
1: beginning. Um, yes. They were bad the last place when I joined them.
0: 83 and 84, and it was Daryl and Doc.
1: Daryl, Doc, Ron yep. Darling. Right? It was all that the group. The
0: rookies of the year. Yes. Was your ex- previous experience doing those things beneficial for when those guys had those issues?
1: I can't think of anything beneficial about drugs. Mm-hmm. Nothing. If I could live my life over again, I wouldn't have done drugs. Biggest regret? Yes, I hurt a lot of people close to me. Yeah, no doubt.
0: What about when those guys, when Doc got hooked? And we know <clears throat> the story after the 86 World Series wasn't around, didn't even come to the parade. What advice could you give, if any? Or did he accept it?
1: Well, number one, Doc had his own life. I lived in the city. I I never saw Doc at home. I saw him on the road um, uh, at at a bar, uh, but not all the time. I mean, we all went our different ways. We had friends or whatever in each city. But um, I remember one game we were playing the Tigers in Lakeland, spring training, 80, 85, was it 85? 86, spring training, after Doc's big year. And Doc started the game, it was late in spring, went around seven innings, and I played around seven innings, I did my running, I got in the shower, gained one extra innings, which is the worst thing that can happen in spring training. Lakeland was around an hour drive back to St. Pete. And I Got dressed, and the game has gotten into the 12th inning, so I just said, I got my book or newspaper. I went on the bus, and I got in the bus, and I sat in the middle of the bus. I didn't even know, it. and all of a sudden, I heard a rustling in the back, and it was Doc went way in the back by himself, and he was just like all fidgety, and I remember going, oh, no, please. Please, God, don't let this happen. And what am I going to do? Am I going to go run to the front office and say, oh, Daryl's doing... I think, you know, it just, it's a, what are you going to do? Uh, and I think that was the beginnings for, for Daryl. I mean, Daryl, I mean, Doc. And, um, you know, we all know the story. I mean, you had two great players. I had three, great, three greatest players I ever played with. It was Gary Templeton, who came up as a shortstop with me in St. Louis, who could have been one of the greatest shortstops of all time. Uh, Doc, who wound up having a good career, good career but... Doc could have been, you could have spoke of Doc in the same breath as Christy Matthewson, you know, Walter Perry Johnson. You had Daryl, who I thought was the next Willie McCovey, and he had a great career. All three of them could have had Hall of Fame careers, and they just went down that dark path. The same one I did, but I was strong enough to recognize and get the hell out of that thing as fast as I could. And it was not easy, but I did it.
0: You talked about Bill Buckner a little bit earlier, and we all know how that series went. You traded losing home games, uh, whereas even in game five, uh, they took from you guys. And in game six, uh, in extra innings, we saw this happen.
1: Incredible. This is only the ending. We all know that. Don't throw it. Oh, poor Bill. Well, you know what? That's the way it goes. But, remember one thing. Everybody thinks that ball's a ground ball and the series is over. We lose. We tied the game. That was going extra innings. But that is uh, obviously a World Series comeback. Bill
0: Buckner beat you in 80 for the batting towel. Did that feel like vindication? No,
1: I'd rather have the... Well... (laughs) Can you imagine if I had two batting titles back-to-back? <laughs> They'd have to put me in the Hall of Fame.
0: You are probably the greatest fielding first baseman in the history of Major League Baseball. You know Bill Buckner. You feel for him? Yeah, I do. I mean, it still, still lingers for him.
1: Bill was our version of Gary Carter. Gary Carter would have to take an hour and a half getting his knees iced and, 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 uh, and taped before every game and after, I would take the tape off, obviously after, but, and he would have to go down and squat. So uh, Bill had, Bill comes from a family in Fresno, I think, Northern California in the Valley. His brother was a better athlete than him. Bill was an f- amazing football player, basketball player, baseball player. got full rides to uh, Southern Cal, UCLA. He was all California. He was a great hitter. And, um, you know, his legs went south on him. He had to get his ankles taped. Uh, you know, should he have been out there in that inning? I can understand uh, John McNamara. You're, you fight hard all year, and Bill Buckner drove in 100, over 100 runs that year. He was a big part of that, that uh, Red Sox championship team. And you kind of want him to be on the field for the final out, and the ball finds him. You know, it's just a twist of fate.
0: That Mets team... I mean, there were stars all over it. Why not multiple? What happened to the Mets?
1: Uh, well, I'll tell you what. Let's look at 84. We weren't that good. We just, Carter was the final piece in 85. We won 90 games and lost to the Cubs around the last two weeks of the season, or maybe two and a half weeks. If they hadn't traded for Rick Sutcliffe, who went 16-1, and one, won the second half, I mean, talk about one of the great trades of all time. I think we might have won the division. And if we had won the division, I would have been the MVP, not Ryan Sandberg. <laughs> and that would have been two MVPs. <laughs> so I think God was getting back at me for my, all, my, all my mistakes. when I made plenty in my life. But um, the next year, of course, is 85. We get Carter. We win 98 games. Cardinals win 102. We go home. You know, today we're in a, we're in a, we are in a uh, wild card, and no one's going to want to play us when we're going to run Doc at your ass. And um, 86, we have the great year. And I will say this, since I researched with this book, only 11 teams in the history of Major League Baseball have won 108 games or more. So that is something to be very proud of. Three of those teams lost, two of them lost the World Series. One, the Mariners in 2001, didn't get to the World Series. So we're in the company of the 1909 Pirates, uh, the 27 Yankees, um, the Orioles, 70, 71 Orioles, or 69, 71 Orioles, uh, 75 Reds. We're in good company. 87. We start the season, and we know we got our hands full with the Cardinals. They were a very, very good team. We don't have Doc for the first month. He goes into the rehab. Week before spring training ends, Roger McDowell has to get emergency uh, appendix surgery. We miss him for a month. In the course of the season, we lost Sid. We lost Ojeda. We lost all of our starting pitch. And Frank Cashin brought up minor leaguers that weren't ready to pitch, but he had faith in our offense because we had such a good offense to score runs. Uh, And we did. Down the stretch, we're playing the Cardinals. We got them at home, if you remember, in September. They came in and they were on like a 10-game losing streak, lost 12 out of 15, and I remember I walked out early. Uh, Well, actually, we hit early, but I stayed and watched them take the field, and they were walking dead. And I said, we got them. We got them. All we got to do is beat them, and we beat them. The first game it was Doc. Uh, the second game, we're up four nothing. In the sixth, darling, our best was our best pitcher down the stretch, pitching great. We're up four nothing. They're dead, dead in the water. And Ron, Vince Coleman, bunts down the third base line. Ron goes to pick it up. He was a Gold Glove pitch, uh, fielding first uh, pitcher, and he hits his thumb and tears his ligament in his pitching thumb. We lose him for the rest of the year. They come back and beat us that game, and that just uplifted them. The next day, we beat them. I got a base hit in the bottom of the ninth with a base hit that scored Mookie. Base hit to left field off Ken Daly. So we take two out of three. We're tied or one game behind them. We would have been if we had swept them, we would have been one up. And they go on and win 19 out of 21. The next, amazing. They just, and we lose by three games. The last week of the season. That season sticks in my craw because if we had had all of our starters, we would have won that. We we, we would have won our division at least. Eighty-eight, we won hundred games, and we get beat by the Dodgers. So, if ands, and buts. Yeah. we were good though.
0: You were good, and I it was, it was fun playing here. Which, which is why people wonder why they only won. Well, no
1: only... one don't no, you know what? No one won as many games as us in the eighties. And, but that doesn't mean diddly-squat. You know, it's all about winning. And, but we had two divisions, one world championship. And like I say, 87 is just, to this day, it just rubs against me. It makes me want to go jump off the Brooklyn Bridge.
0: In your current role as a color analyst, you see this same type of misfortune happening to this New York Mets team. What's, what ails? What's the biggest thing that ails... The Mets.
1: The Mets have a lot of negativity to overcome, and being the little kid on the block. But the Yankees. The Yankees now have really got a good team. I mean, when the, they've got a good offense. They've got young players. Uh, they're they're going to be a team for the for the future. Mets have always been revolved around pitching, and um, but haven't been able to really develop the. I mean, David Wright's probably only the greatest player they ever developed out of their system off, from an offensive standpoint. But the, just the, the little kid on the block that always gets picked on and, then, and, and just the negativity when things go wrong, the sky's falling, it's a lot to uh, uh, overcome uh, as far as young players are concerned. So when I came to the Mets, I was 29 going on 30, yeah, And so I really, when I was 30 in 84 and I really became a team member, started from the scratch. We had all that young talent, and this team was just scattered. I mean, I I observed the second half of the year. I took the first bus in Montreal to the ballpark at uh, at State Olympique. There's no one on the bus. I'm going, oh, okay, they're probably all there early. I get, they're not there early. Game's over. State Olympique was a long way from the hotel, no one's on the bus. So I go to the hotel bar. There's no one in the bar. I go, what is going on here? So I wound up hanging out that year with Mike Torres, a veteran. And uh, he got me through the second half. So I made a point in spring training. Now, everybody's there with their families. But we opened up on the road in 84 in Cincinnati. We went to Houston, we went to Atlanta, and then we went to Chicago. I mean, to open a season up with that kind of road trip, was just brutal, and we had a good road trip. But after, uh, during batting practice and before the game, I made a point to go to Hubie Brooks, and everybody I said, hey, let's, what are you doing after the game? Let's meet at the bar, and let's have beers, and let's talk about the game. And that was my main focus, was to get this team to come together. That's all I did. And they were all young, and they—it was like me with Lou Brock when I came up. Lou Brock was my second dad. Bob Gibson was distant, but Lou kind of took me under his wing, and I never forgot that. And I said, if I ever get a chance to re, to do, the, 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 if the revol- role ever reverses, which it did, with the New York, all of a sudden I was in, I was Lou, and all these young kids were there. Let's get them together and develop a a a camaraderie and talk baseball. Talk about your at-bats. You know, pitch by pitch. A lot of the guys didn't even wouldn't even comprehend that. Well, how do you pitch? I don't. I knew how they pitched them. Mm -hmm. You watch. You watch and you observe. So that's how our club came together and we became very tight. And I think we had um, that New York grittiness that everybody just kind of took to here. Uh, I think that it was a special team and I think the fans I remember coming out to throw I I never took infield. I didn't need it. I took took my ground balls. I told Davey, why do you have to take infield every day? It was was, a rule of his. So when I got to New York I said, Davey I don't need infield. I'd like to take infield at 7 o'clock for a 7.30 game back then and there'd be 55,000 people at that ballpark. 52 or 40 and you could just feel the electricity in that stadium. It was just very, very special. I've never had that, 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 that's that's New York. And they loved us and we loved you guys.
0: Let me take you off the field. How did you meet Larry David?
1: I met Larry David on the set of Seinfeld Mm -hmm. and I met Jerry on the set, so.
0: So this all happened not by they wanted you because of what?
1: Jerry was a, was a Brooklyn guy, right? Yeah. And a Met fan, and I was his favorite player. So okay. he, he con- Larry's a Yankee fan. Uh, Jerry conceived the, the boyfriend episode, and uh, I was a year and a half retired, and not knowing what I was going to do with my second half of my life. I was 39, I guess then. My agent, my last agent, and a dear friend was Scott Boris, and they went through Scott Boris. They didn't go through the Mets, uh, which is surprising to me. So I got a call from Scott Boris, and he, and he goes, they got a chance here. There's this, there's this sitcom that wants you to come and just probably a small role. And I said, well, what's the name of the sitcom? He goes, Seinfeld. And I said, I don't watch primetime TV. We play night games, right? So, and I go, what's that? And he goes, well, just this show. I go, well, how much were they going to pay me? And he goes... <laughs> Well, they'll give you $15,000 for the week and come out and they'll fly you first class, put you up at the hotel. I said, okay, I'll do it. Never had any aspirations to be an actor. Never took a lesson. So I, when I got, they overnighted the script to me. This all came to be on Friday night. I had to get on an airplane Sunday to Los Angeles. Monday was the first day of rehearsal. And I, they overnighted for Saturday delivery the script and I opened it up and I went, oh my God, what have I got myself into with all these lines? So I wound up, everybody knows this story, don't you? I wound up, I called Marsha Mason, the great actress, who was a friend I met in New York, great friend, and she was in Taos, and I said, Marsha, I need help here. So, okay, she told me how to memorize lines. And I flew out to L.A., and that's when I met Larry and Jerry and all the other principal actors for the first time.
0: Now, you got involved in other, um, this wasn't really acting, this was, again, you being you but this was something I apparently don't think you use anymore. Hello, may I help you? Uh, Yes, Cloud and Keith to see Emmett Smith.
1: You should have seen these girls. Your facial hair has put you in a rocking chair. Your beard is weird. Your stash is trash. Oh, it's bad. Just for Men Gel penetrates tough gray and puts it away in five easy minutes. Because Edge is back. He's right on track. Backfield in motion. He moves and grooves. He scores. <laughs> That's where men
0: yell. Keep your hands. When, <laughs> when they presented that to you, did you know it was going to be funny, or were they trying to be serious that,
1: about was that was the second or third one. The first one was really, I thought, the best one with just Walt and I, the, uh, you know, uh, rejected line. Yes. Yes. Um, I was very lucky to, d- to get that commercial. I'll do anything for money.
0: <laughs> You're no longer a just for men.
1: Uh, I, d- I do use it. Mm-hmm. I told you that right here. I don't use it up here. No, I'm, I'm just i just totally gray. On my mustache, and I look like I'm 75 years old, and I'm not, I'm not ready for 75. I-, I won't let you know. Now, in 1982, I stole 19 bases. I have 98 career stolen bases. Um, but when you get older and you lose that little step or that first step's always... I used to sneak them. They never would expect me to steal. I'd wait either... If it was Carlton matched up against uh, Dwight, well, it might be a one nothing game. If I got on the first inning, I'd try to steal and, and, and get in scoring position because it might be a run that would decide the game. Or I would wait late and put everybody to sleep and sneak one in a close game.
0: Which championship meant more to you, Cardinals or Mets? Oh,
1: they both mean a whole lot. Um, the Cardinals hadn't won since 1967. It was 82 we won. Yep. It was my first, and that's the one you'll always remember. And uh, it was very nerve-wracking for me, that series. Um, I got off to a terrible start. I was 0 for 15 in the first four games and wound up 7 for 11 the last three games with eight RBIs. We beat the Brewers in seven. In Boston, I enjoyed it more because it was my second one. But we knew we had our hands full against the Red Sox. They didn't have the pitching that we had. Uh, they had Clemens and they had the left-hander uh, Hurst. And uh, oil oh, can Boyd, please. <laughs> send him a send a limo. And Nipper, Nipper, Nipper wasn't going to beat us. Um... I didn't have a great series. I didn't like playing in Fenway. That wind in Fenway blew in the whole series, and it was cold. And they pitched me in. They weren't going to pitch me out there with that green monster. And they pounded me in that whole three games, and it just seemed like right... I'm not a dead pool hitter where I can knock it around pesky pole. Uh, I'm a gap hitter. And that was a long way out there. And uh, the wind was, like I said, the wind was blowing from right to left. There was... Just not, I, I just never felt comfortable in that World Series. Even at home, it was freezing, but it was freezing in Milwaukee, too, and St. Louis. But uh, I was fortunate enough to get a couple key hits late, so let's save my booty.
0: Uh, we have two questions from uh, the audience want to add in here. You were immediately a leader upon arriving in 1983. What was your relationship like with Gary Carter? Can you, can you summarize? And uh, did you share leadership?
1: Yeah. Well, Gary was one of those players that you hated when you played against him. Uh, he always had the big smile. He was a big macho guy, and he strutted around. He was a great player. You respected him for his ability, but you hated him as a as as, a, as an opponent. When he got traded over, I knew that the New York press was just waiting for them to, there to be friction between Gary and myself. You know, two stars. Um, guys traded over in their prime and I wasn't going to let that happen and I didn't know Gary other than his opponent then so I got to know him in spring training and you know Gary's a whole different person than I was and uh, uh, I just made it a point that we were going to get along and we did and what more simple thing you have 25 players you have one thing in common we play baseball we start in spring training with one goal, to be a world champion. And that should be the foundation right there, and that's what it was. I mean, I had great respect for Gary as a player. And uh, Gary would join us once in a while. And have a, he, he would drink a glass of Chardonnay on occasion <laughs> in the bar. He was a clean liver, uh, but he came to the park every day and played hard. So that was never any issue. Can you imagine if Gary and I didn't get along what would have been the New York Post and the Daily News? Can you imagine? It would have been awful.
0: How do you bat out of order in the first inning?
1: Oh, don't go there. Um, That was a mistake. That was a mistake. That was a mistake in the coaching Whose fault
0: fault is that?
1: I don't know how they do it. (laughs) Usually it's the bench coach that gets the lineup card from the manager in his office when he makes out the lineup card. And that's the line of card that goes to the umpire and the opposing manager. The bench coach gets that, goes into the other room, prints it out on the big card. Yep. That's pasted in the dugout. Mm-hmm. So I don't know. I thought that uh, Mickey took the blame for that. It was that was his fault. I thought it was very uh, very very good thing for him to do.
0: What happened with Matt Harvey? Oh. <laughs> I you know I.
1: He's just, Matt, Matt, I, I, I was in Matt's corner. Matt, had some, Matt, Matt did some good things here. He's had serious surgery, number one. That thoracic outlet surgery, that's what happened to Santana. That ended his career. He was much older. Uh, you don't, There's not enough pathology out there to know how a pitcher comes back from thoracic outlet, at least what I've read. It was quite apparent that Matt wasn't throwing as hard. And here's another case of a guy that comes up that had lightning stuff, razor I love that term. It's one of the only new terms I like, razor blade slider. <laughs> I like that term. And he threw hard, but he wasn't a polished pitcher. So many throwers today, not pitchers. So when you lose, all it takes is that much for a hitter, that much off your fastball, and that much more for you to think and see that ball, read it, And when you lose that much, you lose that sharpness on your breaking ball, a little easier to track as opposed to my day off-the-table breaking ball, we used to call it. Um, So Matt has to learn to pitch to the corners now. And um, when he went to the bullpen, he wasn't happy. And the way he was throwing, I actually almost thought he's pitching himself off this team. He was throwing 91, 92 no effort on his pitch. And I go, he's not happy in the bullpen. He's pitching himself. That's just, I could be dead wrong. Just, just the thought crossed my mind. He goes to L.A. now. or They have him on the gun in 96, starting against L.A. So who knows? But he was starting and getting his butt kicked early in the season, and he's short. He's short, and he's going to have to learn to pitch. Uh, will he ever get it back with that thoracic outlet? I don't know. But if he doesn't, he'd be better a little bit here, a little bit there, a little extra here, a little there. He has to learn how to pitch. A lot of pitchers today don't know how to pitch. The length of the games, one of the big culprits is three, two counts all the time. And it's becoming the old American league now. Two and one change ups, three and one, two and 0 oh, they're all secondary pitches. Guys that are throwing supposedly ninety seven with great fastballs, that's good if you can do it. But, no, as great as Tom Seaver was, Tom Seaver had an awesome, overpowering fastball and knew how to pitch inside. He could ride it upstairs, but he could paint knees and corner on the outside, outside corner with the same velocity, and he had an off-the-table breaking ball. And he did throw an occasional changeup, but that was his third pitch. He wasn't afraid to throw his fastball. Fastball sets up everything. And I know the hitters, are. I love the fastball. And I always hit set on fastball. Uh, but today, if I'm 0-2 off a good pitcher, and it's late and close, and i got men on base where I can beat him, and I can get that count to 2-2, two two, I've turned the tables. I've got him now. That's how I always felt. He's got me 0-2. He's got me a 1-2. And too many guys want to just, excuse my language, I just, this is a baseball, you want to dick around and... <laughs> And next thing you know, it's three and two, and they got men on base. And I got someone hitting behind me. If they walk me, the bases are loaded. Okay, deal with him. You know, in my case, it would have been Carter or Strawberry. You want to mess around, go right ahead. You know, Owen two hitters in trouble. And we've lost sight of that. I, I, I think uh, Rick can probably speak to it better, but that's my observations, what I see. If I hit today, I never looked off-speed or breaking ball. I always looked fastball, and I always had in the back of my mind, okay, I know how Don Sutton pitches me. I know through experience. Okay, he normally throws me, tries to get that backdoor curveball. I'm not looking 100% for it because then I can't hit a fastball. I'm looking fastball, but in the back of my mind, I'm anticipating that pitch. So if I get a fastball, I I, I, I don't take it. I can hit it. See, a lot of guys take... They're looking breaking ball 2-0, and and they take a fastball down the pipe. I want to go get a bat and hit him over the head.
0: Before I take you out of this spotlight, give us optimism for the New York Mets. Where is the optimism for the New York Mets?
1: It's a veteran lineup. Don't worry about the hitting. They're not hitting. This is a veteran lineup. I am not worried about the hitting. Uh, Conforto, for some reason, is struggling. He's been swinging up this launch angle. I don't know what they're teaching there. I don't get involved. And they don't, want, they don't want me down there. I, but he's kind of uppercutting a little bit and pulling too much. Everybody wants everybody to hit home runs. Uh, this guy can lead the league in hitting, just being a gap-to-gap hitter. And he's so damn strong that we've seen him go opposite field. He doesn't need to pull to hit home runs. I mean, do you, I know the 300 average is not that important anymore. Uh, strikeouts aren't important. I go understand that. home runs are okay, fine. They're great to have. It's nice to get a three-run home run when you're down two runs in the seventh. You know, that's always a nice thing to have. But what about the guy? It's a tie ball game, two outs, late and close, so you just need a base hit. That tough out, that Rod, well, not Rod, Tony Oliva, I'm getting dating myself here. Uh, Tony Gwynn, uh, the line drive hitters, those are the guys you want up when you just need a, a base hit. And that doesn't mean you're, you're just slapping the ball. Tough outs, clutch hitters, just too much strikeouts today. I don't like guys coming up late and close that strike out. I don't want them up. They, they know what they means when they strike out? They can be pitched to. It's that simple.
0: I am not Heath is, but you are Heath karnan Thank you very much. Thank you. Thanks for listening to the Thuzio Live and Unfiltered podcast with our guest, Keith Hernandez. Be sure to subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. If you'd like information on how you can attend our live events or book our new virtual ones, visit www.thuzio.com. That's T-H-U-Z-I-O dot And be sure to follow us on social media at Thuzio.